Hey everybody, welcome back to The Dance Up, where we're shining the light of cultural competency on dance and healthcare for better communication and care. I'm Dr. James Walters, Doctor of Chiropractic, where I practice here in Rochester, New York. And I'm Danielle Lydia Sheather, and I'm an assistant professor of dance here at Southern Utah University. So um, today we're actually going to be talking about research and education and healthcare and dance. Um, that's really with respect to like education, research, accountability, and all for the better of creating really truly like a better communication um, within the two fields, right? So um, today we are very, very, very lucky to have Kayla McClellan with us. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, and I'm going to have you just introduce yourself, let us know a little bit about who you are, and then we'll jump right in. Sure. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's really exciting to connect, um, especially because Danielle and I had a lovely connection in Paris many, many years ago. So it's so, so nice to be together again. Um, so my name's Kayla, uh, pronouns are she, they for me. And so I am predominantly a, a dance artist. So that includes choreographer as well as a, a dance researcher. So I'm originally from the United States, um, but I currently live in London, England. I did my master's degree here in dance science. So that's what originally brought me here. And in 2020, I got something called a global talent visa. So that's for artists um, to work as artists in the UK. And I think mine also allows me to work in the EU because I got it in right before Brexit. So I haven't been able to test that out yet, but I'm praying that it does mean that because that was kind of the whole dream was to be able to work in Europe too. So we'll see. Um, yeah, that's a little about me. That's great. Well, thanks so much for again. Yeah. Wow. So many years ago in Paris, I still, wow. What a great time. That was such a fun time, right? Taking class. Oh, what was that? Like, um, oh my goodness. It was like, Le Regard du Singh, that where yes. we did it. it was like a total performance space, right? Oh yeah. It was so oh beautiful. Gosh. Yeah. It was like, was just I always think about our day in Versailles when it ended up pouring oh and we were walking around trying to find something that didn't have meat in it for me to eat. And I just had to eat like a cheese sandwich. And I got so, I got so ill because it rained and it was so cold, but it was such a great day. It was, it was awesome. Well, and didn't we go to, we went to Hope Schechter, right? Like my first yeah, yeah. there, I was like, I got there late, whatever. Yeah, it was so fun. Oh my gosh. That was a great concert too. Oh, All right. Well, enough about like um, reminiscing. <laughs> Let's get back on topic. Um, it's a great topic, though. Right. Oh, for sure. Man. For sure. So, um, can you <laughs> tell us a little bit about the program at Trinity Laban um, with respect to the MFA program in dance science? Um, and then, second part, and I can ask this again, but is there any agency in deciding what to focus on and what you take and that kind of stuff? Yeah. So. The MFA program in particular at Laban, I still, I view it as a still kind of budding program. So when I, when I was there, we were only the second graduating class of the MFA. Okay. So by now, I guess they've had four or maybe only three. Um, so they've only had three to four graduating classes. So it's very much a program that is semi-experimental just because and a little bit more fluid just because um for one thing mfas aren't something that people are used to over here um it's a very new concept and i don't know this for sure but i haven't 
inkling that they created the MFA program so that they could get more North American participants because the MSC would have never been enough for us to then go back to the US and be a lecturer or something like that. Um, Cause it's not the, it's not the same degree. The US wouldn't recognize it. Um, what is a uh, MSC? So a master of science. So since I did a master's in dance science um, and so what it was is that our whole first year we we had all of our modules um, so in American terms like all of our all of our subjects surrounding dance science um, with the MSc students so we all did that together and then the difference between the MSc students and the MFAs after the first year is that the MSc students then literally had to do a much more like truncated experimental research project before the year was over. Whereas the MFAs got a whole nother year to do their independent research study. So it was something like we all started in September, then we ended our modules in July. So it was super intense, like not, not even a full year, not even almost like nearly six. It was a little over, it was about nine months, I guess, eight months. Can't do the math right now. Um, And so then the people who ended in July, um, I think it was July. Oh, it was either May or July, somewhere in between those two, had to then have their dissertation and experiments done by September of that year. So like, it's already, the MFA being only two years for me was insane because in the US it's at least three. Um, so I don't know how anyone did the MFC on a year because I really struggled with just two years. Um, but yeah, so the MFA program has a little bit more, I think what their goals for the program is that it will go that extra mile because they give us a whole nother year to do our independent research projects. So they expect us to maybe take more time on the, um, you know, on the literature review, really, I think I spent my entire summer and almost I mean, you're never done with a literature review, but I really didn't start my experiment until January um, 2019. Like I basically, from my summer through December, I was just reading and, you know, making sure that I created a really sound um, research methods method and just trying to wrap my head around exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, so we get a bit more time to really play with things that, aren't just, and I don't, I don't mean to say this in like painting these subjects in a, in a certain light, but you know, most people, when they have a short amount of time, they do the biomechanics or they do the physiology um, experiments because those, um, the data, the quantitative data is much, um, they focus on that a lot more still. So you already had so much of that given to you in the modules and it's, more set up for you to really be able to get that, those numbers, that data just over and done with. Um, whereas for the MFA, it's not that they expected us to do qualitative research, but they just expected us to, to really make sure that we do the subject matter that we really want to focus on. And that's not to say that any of the MSC students didn't. Most They all picked something that they loved. Um, but I did see a lot more like biomechanics and physiology and quantitative research um, simply because that was their interest. But also I, I do think that some time parameters have something to do with that. Um, so and you brought up 
Uh, sorry, uh, I was just saying you brought up something interesting there. Um, so talking about the the quantitative versus qualitative. So you know, going to going to school and spending time in a, a dance research program. What were the kind of day to day tasks that you would you would do, and how did it differ between those who are going quantitative versus qualitative? And uh, maybe a little even specifically about what were you uh, looking into research on? Totally. So. So all of us had to do the same modules at the same time. So uh, from day to day, so we really started, I can't remember. We only did like two to three modules at one time, I think. So we, we had a module in physiology. We had a module in biomechanics. We had a module in psychology. Um, we had a research methods class, um, a research lab class, which we use all the equipment that gives you the quantitative, you know, um, data. Um, we also had an embodied practice module that to me was an, in an unfortunate position. It was all the way at the end of the year. So that was the other thing too. Like all of the quantitative things were kind of first and it felt like we spent, I don't know if we necessarily spent more time on them than the others, but because it was like the first thing that we all like grasped onto, um, I think that it became a bit more digestible, um, as well. Um, I just really didn't feel like we got to talk about qualitative research that much. And we were really lucky though, to have a fantastic research methods lecturer, Dr. Lucy Clements, who's also known as the dance psychologist on, um, Instagram. And she's got a website. Fantastic. She was also, um, one of my supervisors, supervisors for my project. She's incredible. And so within her research methods class, we did get like really nice um, touches of qualitative research. And she really instilled in us how, cause she loves qualitative research. Um, and she really instilled in us how like qualitative research can just be just as empirical as quantitative, but you have to really create a sound research method and design. Um, and I, I know, well, I suspect from some people that I've talked to in some other programs and things like that, um, other, I think what makes it dance science in terms of that, other than, um, you know, a dance performance degree or uh, certainly other people in other dance degrees do research um, and they use qualitative methods, but sometimes the design of the research isn't um, isn't rigorous, and that's that or rigorous in a in an empirical way, and that's totally fine because it's it's for their goals and their their um, you know what they value in their their research. Um, so that's what I found different at Laban, and because really because of Dr. Lucy Clements, um, because she's just like the queen of research designs and that was really helpful um and so I did mostly my gosh it was so long ago <laughs> and I was actually looking back at my dissertation and I was like <laughs> I would have done something completely different um for me I would have I really would have um and because for me my my time at Laban 
and I'm very much a perfectionist and trying to deal with it, you know, go to therapy, whatever, but um, (laughs) it's like my time at Laban didn't end the way I wanted it to. I was Mm -hmm. such an anxious wreck about my dissertation. And like, I just, I didn't find a research topic until what I felt was very, very late. And then I had some problems with having to switch around supervisors and um, be because of what I wanted to do at the time, um, which I'll talk about in a bit, they also wanted to give me, and they did give me a supervisor from a different department. So they gave me a supervisor from choreography. And while she's brilliant, she knew nothing about me. You know, like we had no relationship and we had no time to create, to understand each other's like wants from this research project that I did because she didn't come on board until January of 2019, my last, like my last few months, I had already collected my data. Like it was all like, so that was something that I felt a little disappointed with in the program because my research project was really hard for them to support. Um, and I'll, I guess I'll go into why that is uh, or why it felt like it was. So I did a, you know, I did a, a mix of kind of qualitative and quantitative. And what I was looking at was this idea of the word collaboration and how much it gets thrown around in, um, in dance spaces all the time. Um, in academic spaces, right? Like for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you're in your own silos and you come together for like <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And um and I while I was reflecting on that as I was, you know, I'm also really interested in like the mental well-being of dancers and things like that. And sure. I just thought about how many times I had gone into a rehearsal setting and just been so pissed off because they'd be like, this is a collaborative setting, like it's going to be great. And then they would basically just ask me to improvise. And then they would just take all that choreography and then like set it, which is, I don't mind if you want to do that, but call yourself the director or call yourself the curator or tell me from the beginning, listen, this is going to be collaborative in what I think of as collaborative. You need to be comfortable improvising and I'm not actually going to do anything to the choreography that you end up making and devising, I'm mostly going to compose it with the other dancers. Like that's totally fine. But to me, that's not, that isn't collaboration. Um, And I guess to be more clear about that is I'd enter these spaces who were like, oh, I want to be collaborative. But when we get to the end game, it's still my name that's choreographer and you, your names are dancers on the, on the, on the program. And that's just a bit of a lie. (laughs) It's like, you know, if I, if your dancers have generated and not just generated moves, but devised the moves like together, yeah, that, that, that is collaborative, but only if you then show the fact, yeah, only (laughs) if you acknowledge it. So I was really interested in this word collaboration and why I was put with um, Dr. Lucy Clements is that, you know, she, because she's so great at qualitative research and as well, you know, was showing me the, um, I can't remember the, the exact term for it now, but just the psychology of collaboration. 
So looking at research, not even in dance, but in like the workplace, because um, there's a lot of like workplace research and things. Um, so that was something. But essentially, I then got really interested in um, there's a researcher called Joe Butterworth, and she has a, a didactic um, to democratic teaching method scale. And I was very interested in that because then it started me thinking about how we've come a long way in teaching teachers how to teach. Nowhere in my time when I was given a choreography class was I ever told how to then interact with dancers. Mm. I was only ever, we're taught how to devise, we're taught how to be creative. We show our work that we make, but nobody tells us how to translate or how to be in a lifelong research world of looking at our practice of translating our, our own choreography or our own choreographic process to other people. Sure. Um, and so, you know, Joe Butterworth's didactic democratic scale, it's not perfect, but it is quite, it's a really great jumping off point. There's five things and, you know, didactic is the most authoritarian, like, I make this, you do, you do exactly what I say. And then the democratic is what we would call collaborative. Um, so what I did, there were so many things I wanted to figure out with this project and it's why, and I knew I, the whole time, my biggest thing was always like, you're trying to, you're trying to do too much. That was my biggest thing. And so I wanted to a look at, um, is the choreographer actually doing the process that they say they do? And is it aligning with how the dancers view the process? So what I did was I sent, I first asked a bunch of people, regardless who I knew were, were doing choreography that year at Laban. Um, I wanted to do it with people outside of the university because we know that when there's a grade being put to the choreographic process, it's always going to be semi-didactic because it's that student's work and they need to get <laughs> the grade that they need. But um, it's a rubric that they have to follow. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so there's problems there. And but I, it, it would have been impossible to do it outside in the time that I had. But, you know, but there's always going to be that essence too, like the closer you get to any performance, the choreographer is going to probably either they're going to take it on more and be like really cleaning it, or they're going to let go. And it just depends on who you are. So um, what I did is I was like, I, I don't remember how I phrased it, but in my research design, I, um, I, I talked about how there would be an aspect of um, misleading or something. I can't remember the exact term I used you know, I got it out of a case study book. I, <laughs> that's the whole thing about research design. It's always like changing and you're always learning. So I can't remember the exact term I use, but um, I, I said I was doing, I was just doing a study on the choreographic process. They had no idea I was looking at collaboration. They had no idea I was looking at the different perspectives of the choreographer and the dancers. Um, so when I got people who were interested I then sent the choreographers who said they were interested just one line of the didactic democratic um, scale. They didn't know where it came from. They had no idea like what it was. It was just, it was just the part about their 
their process. And I was like, please um, choose, you know, one of these out of the five. Um, and then I could only pick a choreographer who described their process as number four or five, because those were the two that were like on the democratic side, on the collaborative side. So I ended up just having one choreographer who marked themselves as a four, um, which was something like, um, it was something like the experience that I normally experience or like the dancers are part of the creative process and devising and we, there's usually an improvisational aspect, but like I have final say on how things are, are put together and stuff like that, which is totally cool because it is somewhat collaborative. My whole thing that irks me is when the credit isn't given, but. <laughs> um, the uh, scale, was that out of 10? Out of curiosity? Five. Oh, okay. Okay. So that was so there's we five, at people yeah. who consider themselves pretty far towards the Democratic Yeah. Side. So it has to be four or five. Um, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So I then, um, what I did was I used another thing that isn't used so much yet um, in terms of dance science research, I find um, is I used a video annotation tool where um, and again, I can't remember, well, I can't remember why, but it was built into my research design to make it super rigorous. Um, and I would just go into these rehearsals for this piece, you know, make my observations, make my notes. They were then time coded. What's great about video annotation is that it's streaming and then the annotation is made time coded exactly as you um, are going through. And um, so, you know, I had my notes and then what I did was I then did a, um, a process of finding, uh, like editing the video to show the clear points of the rehearsal. So like, because I couldn't, the rehearsals were like three hours long. I wasn't gonna be able to do an interview with everyone separately through a whole three hour um, video. It wouldn't have been realistic. The dancers don't have that. Well, I don't want to say they don't have the capacity, but it's like, it's not a capacity that they need to have. Like they're not going to, I wouldn't have gotten any participants if I was like, oh, you have to, you have to sit down for three hours and like talk to me about this. Um, that was the other thing I had to do before I started it. So I asked anybody who wanted to be part of it. So it wasn't even all the dancers. So I only got three dancers who wanted to be part of it. And then the choreographer, of course, um, but everybody else consented to be videoed and things like that. Um, so I, I just mapped out with my own intuitive knowledge of dance, which is where the like research thing gets hazy, but I feel like that happens in any research. It's like, there are some things that you inherently know. Like I know the beginning, the like phrases in the rehearsals and things like that. And that's how I chose to split it up. And I made that very clear in my writing, you know, so that if someone looks at this research design, they should be able to copy it, you know? Um, and so then what I did is I, I devised like a semi-structured interview process based on each clip. I turned them into clips um, and Oh gosh, I should have brought up the questions, but essentially the questions were, um, they went through a process in their, in their uh, own, like, you know, they weren't just the first questions I wrote. I had them 
viewed by my supervisor and revised and all that stuff to make sure they weren't leading and all that, all that good stuff. Um, And so it basically became a semi-structured script about just, you know, a, how do you perceive, like, what do you perceive the choreographer's role is in this clip and what is your role? And then moving on to how does it, um, how did you feel at this point in time in the rehearsal? Because again, I was looking at, I wanted to look a bit as well at how it affected the dancers, you know, um, because if, if the choreographer's perspectives and the dancer's perspectives are matching up, you would assume, and this isn't the hypothesis, but it, you would assume that the morale and the environment would be really great because we're all on the same page. Like that's just, you know, the social construct of life. We're all on the same page. So, um, so those, those were generally what my questions were. And every person, even the choreographer, saw the same clips and were asked the same questions, just reverse. Like, what is your role here? And what is the role of the dancers for the choreographer? Um, and then I did a whole like thematic analysis separately on each. So we had the choreographer's notes, the dancer's notes, and my notes. So I was like an extra like, an uh, you know obser- observer, um, and that all went to thematic analysis, and then you know creating themes and things like that. Um, and I actually did find that weirdly enough, this this choreographer was doing the process that they were saying they were doing and all the dancers were quite happy and they actually were perceiving it um, in the same way. And that gave me a surprising um, kind of conclusion at the end of like that, you know, I had these themes around what it was and I could kind of say that actually this didactic democratic scale pretty much matches up with the choreographic experience as well, not just because it's made for teaching methods, you know, and for teaching. Um, And so what I would love to do with it in the future is we got really lucky that choreographer, she's just that student, that choreographer, she's just brilliant and she's a wonderful human. And she's actually very self-aware and knows exactly what she's doing in the space. But I'd love to do workshops with people who want to be choreographers, just about how do you make your process realistic and transparent and, you know, all these things, because it, it's not necessarily your fault that maybe you're aggravating your dancers or people um, in your process, <laughs> just because we were, if you went to school for dance, again, I don't know if any other school does actually do this, but I was never told, I was never taught how to interact in, and right. translate my, my vision onto other people. Yeah. Um, and that gets really tricky then. Um, and there are so many things that could be avoided um, if we just were a little bit more aware of like the social in, um, interactions occurring and stuff. And, and I think it has, it has implications for other things as well. And that like, you can't, if you can't monitor your, the way you want your process to be, and it can change from project to project. Sometimes I'm very much a collaborative choreographer. Sometimes I'm super didactic. And that's the other thing is that it gives you this chance to be like, oh yeah, I do have a choice. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. It's just that you need to be firm and, you know, consistent with the process that you want to be. Um, and it has further implications. I feel like if you, if you can't be self-aware about your process and then you're also throwing around the, the thing that like, I care about the well-being of my dancers. I can almost bet <laughs> that you are not monitoring what you do right. yeah. 
yeah from a rehearsal to rehearsal basis to to help your dancers and their mental well-being and their physical well-being so mm-hmm. yeah I feel very passionate about it do I feel like the project that I would want anyone to read it no except <laughs> for my research design my research design is killer I do I do have faith in that yeah. um but by the end of it I was just in such a scramble and I was so anxious and I was like oh my god I just need to like get all this like on paper and then I was like oh god um but one of the things you said was really awesome in that we have you know we can we don't always have to be um collaborative we don't always have to be didactic Mm. right like we have choice and I think sometimes that relies too on like the amount of time that we are offered to create something exactly and whether it's housed in the institution whether it's housed like what it is um yeah, and I think, I think uh, young dancers learning that as well, I think is helpful because I create work differently if I know the dancers. Yeah, exactly. I'm like flying in for a weekend, making a thing and hoping that it turns out okay, right? So exactly. I, yeah. it, I think it's super beneficial. And like you said too, yeah. that, that like cognitive dissonance of like, I care about my dancers, mental health and physical health. Let's go ahead today. We're going to learn all of the physicality of this piece. <laughs> let's go or like today I want you to like this piece is about like um uh, even take something as trite now as like the COVID pandemic it's like we're going to talk about our experiences during COVID and like I don't know about other people but it was super traumatic for me like I've got long COVID like it was a really shit time and for someone to ask me to then just like talk about it in a two-hour rehearsal and have no plan for the end of rehearsal for how we're going to you know, come out of it. Cover it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's just, it's not helpful. And um, right. I think that happens all the time in dance. Cause of course we want to make, well, maybe not all of us, but I, as a dance artist want to make really emotional, impactful pieces. But that means that I have a super, super high social responsibility to monitor myself to then be able to monitor like the, the space I'm creating and my dance and any dancers that I work with. Um, right. yeah, I mean, I, I, it was such an ambitious project and I wanted it to be a multi-case study for the reason why you were saying it's like, I wanted something within Lavon. I wanted something within like a ballet company. I wanted somebody who was an independent dance artist. Like I wanted to then like look at all of them. I but- was just going to say, I think the, the biggest thing that is like really impressive with that research model is you're touching on a lot of different factors. And the thing I would be really fascinated in seeing is I know you, so in your in your model, you know, you said you were you were looking for people who self-identified as these collaborators. But I'd kind of even be interested in just seeing an entire research study on throw that out to the companies out there, to all the different yeah. independent projects, see where it tends to fall and how. And then the biggest thing you were hitting on, which opens up an even bigger dance culture conversation is then go in and look at yeah but are you really doing that exactly and i think there's a lot of instances out there where because we and again i think me and daniels have had this conversation about dance education and and even as it relates to healthcare education there's so many facets to this there's no way to learn everything in any schooling but at the same time it's interesting to see how little we focus on what is really the well-roundedness of being a, a, a professional level artist? Like a lot of yeah. dance education in your undergrad is almost strictly technical. 
Then yeah. if you're lucky and you're at a, a, a good place where they talk about the history, you get some of that, but you get almost none of the anatomy and the injury prevention how to take care of yourself. And then even when you look at a research program like this, you, you take into the fact that like, oh my God, like none of the under level, uh, undergraduate level of dance education has anything to do with how to be a good leader. Because ultimately yeah. what we were analyzing is what is this choreographer's ability to be a good leader? Because even if yeah. they're picking didactic, the leader then has to make it clear that it's didactic versus yeah. democratic and then not following through. Yeah. And that's what I was saying, like in the beginning, it, the other thing why I was passionate about this project, but why it was so hard for me is all the research I had to look at essentially was outside of the dance field because, and it was mostly leadership psychology and um, work psychology and things like that. Um, and so that was really difficult uh, to do, but it was, really really interesting and and you're totally right about like I've never found a perfect program all of my all of my really life-changing educational moments within the dance field were because of a teacher in that program so again I don't find I don't know how it is now but I and there are there are other wonderful qualitative researchers in our dance science program as professors at Laban um, but I don't feel like we learned that much about qualitative research I was just lucky to have Dr. Lucy Clement still there teaching research methods and to get all of her extraordinary knowledge from that at Florida State University, where I went to my undergrad, incredibly technical school. It is definitely more research um, leaning in some aspects, but my my love of dance science, like my first entry into love of dance science, was because of Dr. Tom Welsh, and like that was hit, like that was purely him. Like if he hadn't been there. I don't know. I don't know if I would have ever thought about the things about like dancer well-being and like injury prevention and things like that, because, yeah, we were doing great things. We were doing anatomy. We were doing like dance film, you know, and technology and really hardcore technique. But Tom was the one that like really championed the conditioning studio that we had and all this stuff. So I think it, it, it just goes to show that like something I wish that maybe I had done before my master's degree and I got, I got lucky with, with Lucy, you know, but like, I, I used to always look at programs. Like I picked Laban because it's the first master's in dance science that was ever made. It's like world renowned, blah, blah, blah. I'm happy I picked it, but I wish my decisions had been more from me looking at the researchers and the professors that I wanted to learn from rather than the program, if that makes sense. Um, And it's something that I wish somebody had told me when I was younger, like, you know, especially in a master's degree or, or a PhD, it should really, really be more about like, can you find someone with your specific interest, which is also really hard. Again, I think I did my master's too soon. Again, I don't regret it. I think I would have if I had known more, my, my, my attitude going into my master's degree, I don't think was for the right reasons. I went straight after my undergrad and it was based on like, to be honest, it was based on the fact that I wanted to prove that like, I'm not a dumb dancer and that like, I have other things to my, to my belt. Um, And it was also based as well on like, 
I think this really like capitalistic U.S. thing that was so ingrained into me that was like, oh, if you grew up financially unstable or poor or anything like that, like education will save your life. Like you need to get higher education. So that was always my like my motivation talk about, you know, dance psychology, my motivation was almost always extrinsic, (laughs) like external, like, and I had to learn real quick that actually (laughs) intrinsic motivation for schooling is, is key. Cause otherwise you'll end up a whole anxious mess and (laughs) you don't even know if you're doing what you want to do. And like, you know, you have a research project that actually you're really passionate about, but you're just completely sabotaging yourself. Cause you're like, wait a second, this isn't, Am I doing this because I want to? Like, it's just, you know, and that's a weird well, tangent, but it, it's an important. On the timeline that you had mentioned earlier, um, how do you feel? So, so with the structure of going to Laban and you, you, was, you said you had three years to do it, correct? Two. 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 So how do you feel about like the structure of those programs? And especially because you said the quantitative uh, was first. And so I'm, I'm assuming for, for those who may not know, the, the quantitative was effectively like studying like different prevalence of injuries, different uses of muscles, different things like that. Jump more height, hard science you know, statistics. Yeah, yeah. your yeah, jump so, height, your your heart, your cardiovascular, yeah, like there is right. like all these things, which are all very important and is the reason why again I fell in love with dance science. Like the reason why I right. wanted to do a dance science degree was that like I had a really I had a really tough time in dance. My body is seemingly unfit for dance it feels like a lot of times like I'm very prone to injury like I'm hypermobile like all these things and it wasn't until again I I you know I met Tom that I was like oh actually I have agency of like protecting my body which to some people might sound really dramatic but I still know so many dancers who like do not feel like it's their right to protect their body. Like you can say no to doing something or, you know, if you really want to be at this point of like physicality and protect your body, you need to go into the conditioning studio, you know, X, Y, Z, like throughout the week and do these things. So it was really fantastic. And um, yeah, that was my beginning love um, for dance science. But I think that dance science as a field still really put so much almost like honor on doing that kind of research and then doesn't always see the qualitative stuff um which is more about for people who don't know like what I was doing where you you see like interviews and things like that and and embodied practices of like you know practice as research and like my own personal experience but that's where the research design comes in and if you can make a really sound research design it's still fantastic empirical evidence um right yeah well what isn't good research if you're in the studio with someone and literally asking the dancers how are you feeling and the choreographer how are you feeling and like getting that real time real yeah just done this phrase work I'm interested in this am I doing this yeah you know well I understand it's not you know like numbers and you know letters and and all of those things it still provides some kind of aspect like I remember when I was an undergrad I did um psychology and mm-hmm. someone very recently was like oh yeah you definitely undergrad like you definitely did a double major in dance and psychology and I was like huh, yeah really <laughs> they were like yeah you yeah. Really. and it, it was similar right research um leadership and psychology 
um, there was like a sports psychology class that we took, but like, yeah. um, similar, we didn't read exactly about the twisties, but a similar thing of like, what happens when you're at your like most elite, whatever that means yeah. right? in dance, but then like, what happens when something is triggered? So yeah. it's just really interesting to, to, uh, to navigate, like, again, like you said, like a sound research design where we're really, you know, this is what we're looking for. And this is where we're going to gather our data. And while it, again, while the data isn't numerical, it still provides a good insight into what is happening in the room with people. Cause we're, you know, we could, you know, we can measure the length of my arm and we can do all of those things, but like what's happening in here is a little bit more complicated. Right. Yeah, totally. And it's why what you're saying is, is such a great like segue into some of the other questions I think you have about like the dissemination into, you know, the real world. And you know, sometimes it's really, I, I found for me during the degree that it would be really easy for me to like get into that kind of like, almost like pessimistic feeling of like, okay, well, all of this research is super reductionist and like, it doesn't actually work within the field. Um, but what I found is like, so I haven't actually done a research project since I graduated for various reasons. You know, once you leave an institution, it's very hard to, you can't, you know, get ethics unless you're attached to an institution, all that stuff. Um, but for me, I just knew that I'm such a, I'm such a practical person. I always have been. Yes, I am. I can do all the academia and all those things that it requires, but I love working with people. And that is, that is how I like to do it. And you know, I'm such a huge believer in the dissemination to the real world, if you will. Um, but I, I now realize, like, as I was doing some things, it's like, okay, yeah, but all that research helped me just even analyze so much more and see and observe and make a new, like, scale even for myself as a choreographer or as a facilitator and how to process that. And I do then hope to disseminate that in workshops or whatever and that kind of thing. But it was a real click for me when I was like, oh, why am I fighting this so hard? Like I was like, the only way I can make a difference is if I'm a lecturer in, in you know, a, a, a school. But then I was like, actually, I always, even before this master's degree, I've always taken my knowledge into the space with me. Um, and now you get to be like, well, I can back it up because go read my dissertation or something. <laughs> Um, but you know that it's sound and, and it, it, for me, it almost feels like my day-to-day -day life research that isn't put on paper is so much more rich and analytical and like, um, you know, so something I've been doing is doing, uh, movements, uh, and arts work with folks who need some, like, jolt into positive well-being so like I did a uh, a workshop that I called that was called sound walking because it uses the idea of sound walking but I like created it to work with movement as well um, and I did it to like the Royal College of Psychiatrists so to psychiatrists who wanted to do more like movement things and think about that in terms um, of what they can do and connect with their clients and then I did one for the NHS primary care staff so that's the healthcare staff in the UK um, at the peak of COVID because they're really all just understandably like down in the dumps. Um, and so I was able to make a really like much more clear presentation and program 
for people who weren't dancers to understand purely because of the practice I had during my master's degree. You know, those skills of learning how to organize information and then be able to translate it and be transparent about it, not just from, because that was like the topic of my research project, but also just from the practice of, you know, mining your knowledge, mining the knowledge you get from books and making it into this cohesive dissertation um, has helped me so much. And then that just makes it much more clear and gets me closer to the, my overall goal, which is to translate the, you know, empowerment and the positive mental well-being or the emotional catharsis and healing that movement can give to everyone. Cause that's my end goal. Like, yes, I want to choreograph on dancers, make work and blah, blah, blah. But actually this arts and health aspect is probably my greatest passion. Um, and so that's where I found, you know, that the other skills that you get from just doing the process of, of a master's degree, um, was really helpful. Again, I think, with the dissemination and, and kind of talking about, and, and not to say that healthcare in any way has like perfected this method, but um, <laughs> one of the things that I think would be beneficial to the arts as far as a way of helping the entire industry kind of evolve and progress further faster is, you know, so in healthcare to maintain our license, every year we have to show that we take so many credits of continuing education. And when you look at the arts industry, performing arts, dance, um, you know, there's no license you have to have to own a dance studio. There's no license you have to have to own a uh, uh, dance company. And so there's nothing to hold uh, some of the artists out there, especially in those leadership positions as it relates to your research here, accountable to say, hey, you need to keep bettering yourself. So while in healthcare, we have this method of forcing the dissemination of research, I, I will counter that by criticizing that no one forces you to learn things about patient interaction or about cultural competency yeah. either. I, I could get all of my continuing education on just how to better adjust the neck basically, but yeah. at least there's an accountability. I think that's something that would benefit the arts because I think the hardest thing about the, this qualitative kind of dissemination and the quantitative, I don't think many company directors are looking at that either, but I think that that difficulty comes from is it's only happening in higher education where you have that upper 1% of people pursuing it. How yeah. Do you feel and a, yeah. I was just gonna say, what do you think a potential answer moving forward is as far as like, what would you like to see about how we get research and how we bring people to the table to look into that research and dance? Yeah. So uh, what you're saying that it, it, I'll just, I'll, I'll piggyback onto like my own research for a little bit again and, or what I wanted. So I mentioned that I'd love to do those kinds of, almost what you could see as continuing education credits yeah. for like choreographers where, you know, we, but that doesn't exist. So it would just be like workshops for choreographers who want to better their translation of their process and be a bit more like analytical about who they are as a choreographer, like practice wise and how to work with their dancers. But then we get, the reason why I haven't started it yet is that like, well, for loads of different things, but I want to know, Ooh, how do I get around what again I can only assume will be such a biased sample population because I don't know about y'all but like the only choreographers who are going to come to that workshop are probably going to already be choreographers who are pretty damn good at 
monitoring their process and stuff. Right, and like the people, self-awareness, yep. yep. Yeah, the people who really need it are going to be the defensive ones who are like, you can't. I just want to make work. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I don't want someone to analyze my every move, like, and, right. you know, judge me, because that's, that's the word. It's like, the people get really weird, especially everyone gets really weird, myself included, as soon as anyone comes in to observe one of my rehearsals. And it's not necessarily even just about, you know, how I'm interacting with the dancers, but like you get timid about the stuff you've made and like, or you do get timid about how you're interacting with your dancers. Maybe you're having a terrible day and you're like, I really don't want people to see this, but (laughs) yeah. So I, I'm always like, Oh, the only way that I feel like I could get (laughs) into these places that actually need it is again, if I, if you like network with somebody who's already within the institution or within like something that's like the company um, or if you get to the independent artist and you're like, Hey, um, I really love your work. You know, how do you, but how do you then say, but I was kind of seeing like today how you were doing in the, in, in this like residency today and I think you could benefit a lot more if we like looked at how you talk to your dancers. Like, like some people are going to get really pissed about that. And then as yeah. somebody who's still active as a dance artist, so as a mover, I have <clears throat> the terrible like um, need to, again, almost make myself smaller. Like I can't burn bridges. <laughs> because or I can and I definitely burned some bridges that super deserved it and they don't have the full like ethics and morals that I want to associate myself with but I don't want to like go up to someone who's actually not doing terribly but I think that they could like learn a little bit about how they interact with dancers and things like that but they could then just be like well I'm never gonna call them again I'm never gonna have them come around and and then they still don't look at their process. I don't know. It's um, so I think what would be the way that I've thought about it as well about how to disseminate this stuff um, into things that aren't just institutions is okay. Let's show people that there are simple tools because the other thing too is that in dance we all usually have a very limited time to make stuff. So nobody is like, I don't have, like most people are not going to like the idea of, okay, well, so now you want me to add on time to be able to like reflect with my dancers if I'm doing a a good job, you know, or whatever they would say. Um, You need something that makes it simple and um, doable within the time frame without disrupting the creative process. Cause that's the other thing you'll always hear is that people are like, I don't want someone coming into my or messing with my creative process. And it's like, okay, that's not what we're talking about, but I get it. Um, so what I would really, how much of that is a crutch too, that they're using to (laughs) challenge. Yeah. I think something you touched on that was kind of jumping out to me is as dancers growing up, we're very comfortable and used to getting corrections, getting told, yeah. hey, move your hand here this way. When you cross that threshold to administrative, how many choreographers read reviews of their work? How many choreographers or artistic directors are used to someone coming in and saying, hey, you know, all of a sudden that movement phrase has nothing to do with your work. What are we what are we looking at there? What are we trying to do? <laughs> or, hey, you know, 
you told your your dancers they'd get this day off, and then last minute you told them they had to come in. What what are we accomplishing with this? Yeah, like, I don't yeah. think that infrastructure is there to challenge it. Or <laughs> even something as simple of like you're not saying anything um, harmful necessarily, but I notice that you don't give praises in rehearsal, and it's only yeah. about um, um, you do better, better, getting better, it, be- getting it more. better. And you're not saying it in a mean way, but actually we know from research that if you sprinkle like positive reinforcement and praise works really well to like, to balance out the space. So it's just, mm-hmm. yeah. So the, the tool that I really love, and it's unfortunate that, um, there's not a lot of options out there is this video annotation tool because it could allow like, because who, how many choreographers have a notebook with them all the time and they're making notes throughout the rehearsal process and also before and after um how many choreographers as well end up spreading that across like five notebooks and then never looking at it all again because i'm very much that way so is that helpful whereas like with the video annotation tools you have a video so you've got that immediate feedback as well which we know is really great for like the processing in the brain and things like that. And then all of your notes are in this one place and they're time coded with these things. And you can then also share that link to your dancers and then they could make their own like notes either before or after. And it doesn't have to be extensive things. It could be like, okay, y'all, if you have like any moments today of the rehearsal that you felt were a bit like off in whatever way, just like, scroll through the video find that point leave me a message I don't need to know who wrote it or whatever but I would really love to to just know if something was either uncomfortable or if it was good and yeah I know that's a little bit of extra time but it also makes it anonymous it makes everyone be able to do it on their own time and really for the choreographer it's not that much extra time because you're making notes during rehearsals and after rehearsals and before rehearsals anyways. It's really asking your dancers for a little bit of more time. And it gives them that autonomy and that like permission to be like, oh yeah, actually when you said this to me at this point in the rehearsal, um, it didn't make me feel good. Or even something that has no emotion attached to it necessarily, but like, oh yeah, this part of the rehearsal you explained it like three different ways, but I still didn't understand it. And I need you to find another way to explain it. Um, that's also very valid. Um, so that's something I would love to see. And, and video annotation tools are free. Usually there's one called like rv.processvideo um, that I tried to use for a little bit, but it's it crashes a lot. It's not very reliable. Like it's just something that's beginning to, um, really get um more research on and what I ended up using was the um oh gosh it's Amsterdam (laughs) it's based in Amsterdam and I've worked with them and now I can't remember the name of it (laughs) um maybe it'll come to me later but it's a lot of things that are themselves in research and a lot of them are very text-based so what would be wonderful is if we had an annotation thing that you know, you could draw on during the performance, kind of like that really famous dance piece. Oh God, what is it called with the tables? And they show you in real time, they're making like- um, Oh, that's Foresight, oh, isn't it? Foresight, yeah. yeah. That's a video annotation tool. I don't think it was real time because I don't think real time was available at, like 
able to happen at that time, but it was post annotation. Um, and that was, that was, I think what they call it is visual annotation rather than text. Um, and what's great with, you know, with annotation as well, if you really go into what annotation is, it's like, okay, yeah, you, you write something with it at that time, but the whole thing about annotation is you can keep going back to it and then further analyze it, you know, like this one thing you had. And just like when, you know, I don't know, you were in AP Lit class or whatever the equivalent of that is in other schooling and like high school or middle school. And you had to annotate a book and, you know, you got to highlight it and they got to write a note about it. And then you'd be like, oh, actually that made me think about something else. And you go back. Um, it's just really good for the way that the brain works. Usually um, it's a good method. And I think it's, I think it's quite quick dependent on how we all usually work anyways. Um, but yeah, in terms of like disseminating it into other populations necessarily that, so I think independent dance artists could could do that, you know, with, with a little video annotation tool um, or without it and just being more aware about it. Um, but then if you get into things like recreational centers or like dance teams that maybe, I mean, dance teams are usually a bit more didactic anyways, but that's also fine. Um, it can get tricky. I, I, I actually don't have an answer for how to disseminate it there because, um, well, you, you, said, you talk, you start talking about the very like evident ops or uh, obvious obstacles of like getting into a school, like a public school has a lot more red tape than getting into right. a, a university, you know? So, and especially when you start talking with like working with vulnerable um, yes. participants and things, which are who I think need dance and our dance research the most, because, yeah. you know, the whole reason, maybe not the whole reason, but the reason why I love to bring movement to younger vulnerable populations is it, it has so much to teach. Again, if you have a really clear process or a really clear um, goal, like it, you can teach so much about like reconciliation and also just like how to, you know, regulate your emotions and how to like work with each other. Like there are so many incredible things that you can get from it. Um, but it's so, it's so hard to get into those, those places, um, understandably so for safety and things like that. But well, and I think too, like looking at, so like in Utah, um, if you want to be a dance teacher, right. You yeah. Gotta, um, you've got a, you can do licensure or not licensure. And typically the students who do licensure are those that um, want to teach in a public school, either elementary or middle school or high school. Yeah. Um, but even looking at the legislation, so like something is, and this is not necessarily on topic, but like modern is the most foundational, right? And then it's like completely left mm -hmm. out jazz, completely. So like even just those elements, so looking at what, what it takes to become licensed. Yeah. And are there also those continuing ed courses or whatever and again to to your point right I could easily just go and be like I'm just going to take a jazz workshop or a ballet workshop or whatever yeah. but is there is there something about like psychological foundations or um something about being a good leader or or developing empathy in your students or you know whatever that thing is um working with vulnerable populations what whatever those things are if those aren't a part of getting that license what does that mean right yeah. how does that how does it get disseminated further, right? And then, and also to like look at our how the ways in which we're 
approaching our choreography classes. Should we put in a module where we talk about how are you speaking to your dancers and what is your process? And let's develop, because we write artistic statements. Yeah. Like, what does that actually mean? You know what I mean? Like, I think sometimes we have these like assignments in our classes that that work that, that, you know, check a box. And I don't, I I don't mean this like, uh, you know, across the board or as a blanket statement, but there are those assignments. It's like, oh yeah, my students should know how to write an artistic statement. They should know. And in in practice, they also should know how to, if they want to be choreographers and if there's, there's something interesting and unique about making work for them, how they're um, communicating with their peers in this case, or with, you know, if they go to an elementary school and they teach or whatever. Um, So I think that there's those, those like checks and balances that we can put in to some degree. And then also like bringing in artists who are, who are doing the thing, like who are actively participating in that. Right. I think there's a big conversation right now around in academia that like, are you still in the field? Are you just in, you know, and I don't mean just, I really, I don't want to get into that like whole debate, but I do think that it's important to recognize that like these qualitative research um, designs are happening. And yeah. they can help to affect our students in a really positive way. So how are we approaching them in our classes as well, right? Yeah, totally. And I, and I think, and what I think, the, the way we're really going to triumph and really um, champion people to go to those workshops that are actually more thorough and asking these tougher questions, the way we're going to get there is instilling that into individual by individual on a, what you could call an off book basis, because we, we know. Um, Students are only going to do the work that's going to get them on the grade. Like exactly. I, we know they, that as well. And we also know any of us who's ever tried to change anything within any kind of institution <laughs> know that it's, we can't do it alone. And even if we can get it in motion, it's going to be years it's going to be years to get anything changed. And so I think the best change we have is teaching, working it into our own required set of rules, whether it's in dance or in academia or the mix, um, working it in there um, to then hopefully encourage that student to, to go off and do those things, whether it's required or not. And again, that's, a, I guess that kind of, ties back to what I said about like I never found a perfect program but who I am today was because of these certain professors who who shaped my worldview and like and it's my choices like so I'm now a certified instructor in something called double skin double mind it's a somatic movement method from ICK Amsterdam their company uses it um I was part of the first round of people who were allowed to get certified as an instructor outside of their company members Um, and I've been waiting a really long time to find a dance method or movement method that aligns with my values, not just as an artist, like not artistically. And it's not, it's not a perfect method, but what aligns with my values and how I want to be held accountable as a movement artist and teacher. And it's one of the only dance methods in the contemporary world that I know of that I will be required to do continuing education credits. Like I will have to continuously go there every like year or two and do like a few days of like continuing education to keep my certification. Um, and that comes awesome. from that knowledge came from the fact that, you know, Tom really encouraged me to become like a Pilates instructor. And 
the incredible Pilates um, styles of balanced body and stop that I'm a part of, you know, you are also required to have that continuing education credits. And I was like, wow, sometimes I'm like, oh, this sucks. It's so much money, but I also really value it because I know that I'm giving my clients, especially the ones that need like rehabilitation, the most up-to-date, like scientific research and things that we know. Mm -hmm. And I knew as myself, as a movement artist, I never, I just knew I was never going to feel comfortable to just be one of those people who goes out and is a, is a dance teacher of contemporary technique until I had something that I knew was going to hold me accountable every few years um, in both how we grow creatively and how we grow socially as, as um, instructors. Um, but that's, you know, that, that's not a requirement and there's hardly that many things for contemporary in my knowledge, like we've got loads for ballet, we've got RAD, we've got Chiquetti, like I did all that stuff, like all of those things. But in the contemporary world, I don't know, maybe Gaga makes you do it in counter technique. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they make you do continuing though. I know you get, I know you get certified, you have to do a certification process, but I don't know if you have to continuously Keep, do yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. So other than like counter technique and Gaga and then double skin, double mind, those are the only three that I know of in terms of the initial certification, mm -hmm. but DSDM double skin, double mind was the only one that I knew you have to do like uh, every few years. Yeah. Well, I was going to say like, I think it's important to, <laughs> sorry, to <laughs> like, um, like if we stop, uh, you know, as dance artists and 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 choreographers and educators and all, if we stop learning, we stop the dissemination of information. Yeah. Right. And not not to say that like I'm a gatekeeper or anything like what I say goes or anything yeah, yeah. like that, but just that I am not teaching the ways in which my teachers taught me. I learned yeah. the way that they taught me, and I learned some very valuable information. Yeah. And now I'm taking that information and evolving it into something else. And I only hope that my students continue to do the same thing. Right. And that it's a, we're on a continuum and that we're not, because otherwise I, we would still be, you know, um, teaching when well, some people are, but like, you know, the, this is the way to do this. And this is the way, right. Which is like sometimes humanly impossible for particular bodies. Right. Yeah. So I think the more that we can have that understanding of, um, and I mean, to your point, right, James, like there are continuing ed um, credits that you have to take as a, as a chiropractor, right, but right. I wonder again, like, again, to your point, right. But I could just do adjustments of the neck or I could just do yeah. whatever I need to do to, to check that box and so I think part like every now and then I do have this conversation with myself about like personal responsibility and social responsibility yeah. um because I do I really do believe that like in dance and like and healthcare, right they take the Hippocratic oath right like right. They, you know and so I wonder how we're how we're treating our you know it, we're telling our dancers often now especially especially now but you know, um, there's that article about how the pandemic has changed uh, dancers' bodies and we need to adjust to that or honor that. Um, mm -hmm. we, we talk to our dancers all the time about agency and, uh, and autonomy and like, if there's a lift and we've run the piece four times, let's just talk to our partners. You don't even have to talk to me. That's like a rule in my, my rehearsals. Just don't do it. Just talk to each other so I know that you guys are clear and you're not gonna hurt yourselves. Yeah. Um, but in the ways in which we're having that conversation and if it is believable or not, right? And that that depends on how we communicate. Yeah, people, right? and it's steeped in so much other stuff as well. Like 
as as you were talking it just it, i had a revelation as well of like the other way that we're going to encourage not just dissemination but encourage constant learning we're not going to be able to do that until we also recognize and change the way that <laughs> dancers view labor and finances and things like that because 100%. <laughs> because i you cannot yes you can tell a dancer or a student dancer or whoever or a choreographer like it's way more beneficial if you go to all of these workshops or if you do this continuing education credits it's really necessary but we're not going to pay you to do that or we're not right. going to work it into your salary or we're not going to do you know which i mean we're hardly ever getting paid to do our own work anyways in terms of performing and again it's instilling that financial like choices within the financial realm too and and it has to be your choice to like walk the walk to change anything from other than like talk like i i made a pact with myself a few years ago that like i and it's it's lost me a lot of work and a lot of opportunity but i was like i'm not going to produce work unless I can pay my dancers and that's really hard because I come from a generation and I come from a community of people who just love to dance and we do want to just like make work and show it but I it's not going to change unless we all start saying no and that is so hard because again it means that I'm not I've been sitting on a piece that I've wanted to make for years years and trying to get funding and it hasn't happened and it's a vicious vicious cycle because usually part of those funding applications is they want to see a little bit of the work and i'm like and i always send a message and i'm like i hope you understand that this is inherently like theft in terms of your thing because it means that i have to have made something before i get the money that i'm asking for to make this right. um, and it means i make a lot of solo work because it's if it's myself working for free then that's on me that's myself but if i cannot i i, I just yeah and um so there's so much more at work. So how can we even ask people to, you know, do this continuing education stuff? Because in the Pilates world, my studio I work for paid for my, you know, $2,000 reformer yeah. course. Like, and I, I assume hopefully in the healthcare world that you, if, if not, they pay for you, it's still, it, it's part of kind of like oh, yeah. what your paycheck salary like expects of you to do. Yeah. Um, and I've talked to old professors now friends in academia who like the amount of work that you do is not a it's in your job description but it's not a part of your your pay like uh concept so yeah, have, yeah. yeah so it's just well and that's where I kind of wonder where where it comes because in my mind I'm thinking well the onus needs to go kind of top down to like the largest levels like we need to have universities and colleges pushing this and we should have the big companies pushing this but yeah. at the same time like reflecting on like healthcare so uh, in a parallel way to what we're talking about with the conversations as like a, a leader a choreographer and whatnot you know in healthcare we talk a lot about and I learned in school that the modern model is called the biopsychosocial model Whenever there is an imbalance in health, there is a biological component, a psychological and a sociological. And as providers, we talk about that a lot and we use the flowery words. Yeah. But when I write patient notes and in my new patient intakes and I'm talking about 
depression, anxiety, uh, suicidal intonations, relationships. And I'll put it in notes and I'll talk to other providers. They're like, what does that have to do with what you're doing as a chiropractic treatment? Why is that Mm -hmm. in your note? And I'm like, well, it's the biopsychosocial model. So similarly, how you did a study looking at how sincere we are with the democratic versus data. I'd love to see how many providers truly practice that way and reflecting on it bigger with a sense of continuing ed yeah my practice effectively it's built into my contract as an associate that i will be i will have enough continuing ed pay for in a year such that by the end because we have to submit every three years by the end of those three years i will be guaranteed to have enough credits anything additional i have to pay out of pocket but a lot of that comes from legislation where we're legally bound and i don't know if maybe it's a cynical look but like i wonder if that's what it would take for like an artistic director at the ABT to say, oh yes, everyone on faculty, if you're leading, including me, must take so many out. And because I look at it, I'm like, yeah. And again, this is might be a cynical look, but how many practices out there would pay for their associates to go get continuing ed if there wasn't a legal you know, ramification yeah. otherwise? Yeah. And I, I am a firm believer that there's, there should be a legality uh, aspect to right. it because honestly, it is terrifying how many people are working in dance and they are causing so much psychological and physical damage. And it's just one of the most unregulated fields that I've ever known. It really, really is. Um, There's not really an official union. There's not like, I like in my head, (laughs) I'm like, if you're, if you're against adding a like legal uh, statement on it, then you've probably got something to hide in my opinion. Right, right. <laughs> and, and we would certainly weed out the like, because again, if, if somebody was like, yeah, it'll be in your contract, you legally have to do X, Y, Z, um, but we'll pay for it because it'll then be part of our contract as well. And we have to do it. I don't have a problem with that. If you have a problem with that, it's like not your money. It's not necessarily your time because they also give you the time to be able to do it. What's the problem? And you'll start seeing really quickly again, like also all of the like sexual assault allegations coming out and dance and things like that, that are just starting to really come up. Oh man, we'd be seeing a lot more if, or a lot of like weeding out those horrible people if there was any kind of regulation in our field, but our, our field has so many other problems than just how we're disseminating our research. And part of the inhibitors to how we disseminate our research is because of the other crap that our field is built on. Honestly, it's like of the hierarchy and the power structures. And, um, you know, when dancers get I know that some choreographers or some teachers wouldn't like the kinds of things they wouldn't let me in because as soon as those dancers get that knowledge, we know knowledge is power. And they're like, Oh yeah, I do have autonomy and I can say no. And I can do this, that business, that dance studio, that, that dance competition that is going to crumble, you know, so many things are successful in the dance world because of the promotion and encouragement of the infantilization of dancers and both physically and mentally. Um, Yeah, so I really do think that there should be so much more um, legal things and contracts. And even if you're just making a small dance piece, like I don't remember who, who like brought it to my attention, but it's like, 
even if you're not paying your dancers or whatever, there should always just be a contract to sign, like just to have some sort of thing there. It's just good to practice. Mm -hmm. Um, Somebody did it. I was in their like MFA piece while I was still in uni and they did it. And that was probably how it was brought to my attention. I was like, Oh yeah, that's like a good, good thing. Even though I know like we're all friends and whatever, it's fine, but it, it is introducing those like, more legally standing things um and then I very much noticed and this was something else I learned from a master's degree when you know we're doing consent forms I was like I should have a consent form for this piece I want to make because there's lots of like really kind of troubling emotions or aspects of it and so now I do all that kind of stuff too and I'm like oh crap I very much now notice if I enter someone else's process or something like that and I'm like hmm there's no sort of contract there's no consent form. There's nothing. I already know that this isn't even like that my well-being or my um, like future feelings about all this is not even on the table right now because I haven't even become aware of doing things like that. Um, right. And how much um, of the culture is just built in to be, yes, you do the thing because, and I think historically that comes from uh you know, dance very much coming from like medieval courts are modeled very much after the military. It's why we wear costumes that are all uniform. It's why it's very codified. It's all based on that. And there is this zero consent request from top down. And I think our generation is hopefully leading that charge on like changing that. But yeah, I think it's all, and I like what you said there. Yeah, without a contract, you're basically, yeah. And I've never even thought about that way, which means I'm still kind of having that program because it's like, yeah, without any sort of contract, you're basically saying, yeah, my feelings of security and job safety are just not a priority to you. No. Which should be a, I mean, that is very much like a micro tra- uh, uh, transgression. And yeah. I've never even realized, I'm like, yeah, that's that's 100% valid. Well, James, what you just said too about like that deprogramming. So it's okay to say no, it's okay, right? So yeah. But these students, I mean, they're, they're, they still have stories about choreographer. I mean, I had a choreographer throw a shoe at me too, you know, but like, they're still doing that. And I'm like yeah. 20 years older than they are. And I'm like, what? That's still happening? Like, wow. And so this idea that even when we tell our dancers and we ask for consent and we, we have them sign forms and, you know, it, you are allowed to yell hold in the middle of a show and you are allowed to, you know, do these things. They don't necessarily believe it, not because they don't believe you, but because of the way that it has been ingrained in their bodies to say like, no, I'm not supposed to do that because. And it's not, yeah. Oh, and I'm just going to, and it's not consistent because more of us need to do it. Yes. If yeah. it, the yeah. programming takes so long, Yeah. you know, I've worked with so many wonderful choreographers who have done these things. I've also still like, if it's not happening time and time again, you're not going to then feel that permission like even if someone's telling you you know um that's god that's connected to trauma as well like that it's just you know and and, coming from I think from the like beginning stages of dance these sources of authority and comfort in many cases even with the parents are the ones telling you not to do things I had a situation recently where a student left a rehearsal uh basically in tears and I had said to one of the other people in the rehearsal I'm like I think you need to talk to their parents and get them involved in the situation because this is a a 10 year old and the parent effectively responded to this uh person saying oh well you know that's nothing new uh she'll be in class tomorrow and it's like 
well, whether it's nothing new or like that, what, this is an abusive situation. This is a technical oh, yeah. sworn at during a rehearsal. That how is the response? Well, that's nothing new. That should be abuse is nothing new. I'm livid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and oh my god, that's just. I mean, there's so many things we could talk about. That's another good point, and uh, it, it, the consistency, like you said, like there. Oh gosh, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was um, Lucy Clements, Dr. Lucy Clements, and then. Uh, somebody else she collaborated with, with but it, basically it was a research study on how important it is to actually have parents involved in the yeah. dance field of, of adolescence because exactly as you're saying like the message it has to be consistent at home and in the studio um, and if it's not then you get those horrific you know infuriating uh, <laughs> just things about like my parents is thinking that this kind of abuse is fine, but actually like then one of my teachers is saying it isn't. And that parent has been conditioned to think this way as well. And God, yeah. And the other thing that you, you'd said, James, was that like it, the other funny, not funny in a ha ha way, but like in a <laughs> annoying and infuriating way as well is that every single thing we've talked about so far is based on the like model of dance field that is just completely white and Eurocentric. That's the other deep problem in our field in terms of talking about education is like we as white like folks and white dancers and people like that have created the situation we're in right now mm -hmm. because it began with you know the whole the the age-old story of of you know, ballet being the, so that the king could be in the center and have look over at all of its subjects and things like that. And then this need to, this, this need to categorize and, you know, genderify and all these things that, you know, necessarily right. might not have happened if we were really like actually looking at all forms of dance mm -hmm. and, you know, it also gets, it gets hairy in the research world too, because, you know, here I am talking about how it was so frustrating to try to get a qualitative research study done because in our systems, which are very like white Eurocentric, like institutions that I couldn't really get many people behind it because they need like hard evidence. And they don't talk about emotions and, and like, feelings whereas in other cultures that's exactly what the research is it's you know it's word to word it's movement to movement and it's just yeah <laughs> that's, that's like it's how are we going to get out of all of this until we recognize that like we made it and the only way out is to let the other people <laughs> specifically like black and brown folk in and let them do what they do <laughs> and learn from that too and not force everybody other white people included to go by these models that we've made that are just so oppressive and so elitist and classist and exclusatory like 
Well, that, and you're, you're like speaking such truth because if we can look at it from the dance perspective, we can look at it from the healthcare perspective. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it would be wonderful to like have a dance therapist in every single um, dance program in the nation. Yeah. I think that would be, I think it's important. I think I am not a mental health provider. I, I, there are some serious vulnerabilities that come out. Um, in dance, in improv, in choreography, students sometimes want to deal in their choreography with trauma, and they're not yeah. necessarily informed on how to deal with that. And then when it's an intersectional-based uh, piece where there's multiple races, there's multiple genders, there's multiple identities in the room, and they're not taught this anyway, and then they're yeah. not taught how to deal with it in that way, it just yeah. be, it just creates this cycle of of continued like oppressive and continued harm. Yeah. Right? And I think like, especially, I mean, I know you're in the UK, but like here in, in, in the States, like we don't have national health care. So we can't say, oh, well, you know, you're in, even if it's just like an arm, okay, you're injured. So can you go and, and uh, just maybe you need an x-ray? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Let's go and figure out what's going on. I don't have health insurance. Right. Yeah. That's like a common conversation that like yeah. when I was going to school in the States, we had to have health insurance. We couldn't register for classes without it. That's yeah. no, that's at least not the case where I am right now. But then yeah. they can participate in dance. And then we like serve ourselves by putting an assumption of risk. So then it's like, right. ah, how do we make that happen? Right. So I think it becomes an even larger conversation than when we're also talking about um, the, you know, and I'm going to say it, but like the racist ideologies behind um, healthcare too. Right. Yeah. So it just creates this vacuum of, you know, how do we do better? And I, you're right. I think it's in the legalities. I think it's in the legislation. I think it's in these conversations where we have a better understanding of how to improve and how to, because um, it's not about maintenance, right? It's about like, I think, dismantling and restructuring and rebuilding, yeah. right? There's, there, we can't maintain what we have. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And it's been, I mean, that's been proven for like a number of years. But as you said, right, as students become, as students, as professional dancers, as, you know, anyone in the field starts to become empowered, we are going to, like, students might now start to understand Title IX. They might start to understand, you know, dancers, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's where we have to have these, these like, I don't know, like, uh, true, like, real conversations where we sit down and we have these conversations about how to you know, what, what is it going to take? Because it is, it is something that's not just, you know, this, this one little thing that's the issue. It's like the, the entire system at play. Yeah. Right. Well, it's yeah. the question of like transparency and accountability, because I mean, yeah, in, in healthcare, one of the big things, I mean, specifically in chiropractic is it is so predominantly, even just from a gender basis, uh, male dominated. There are very, by comparison, mm -hmm. very few female chiropractors yeah. and looking in the dance world, like you kind of grow up and I think that the commercialization of arts and the Hollywood story of arts that they try to push is very much like arts is this progressive all accepting place. But again, specifically coming from classical ballet, which is where I mostly spent my time in. Yeah. Unless you're playing a comedic role, intentionally programmed and coded comedic role, there's no transgender in ballet. No. And that's not even to say like, oh, a character being taken seriously as transgender, but like I've never even found a company of any type where I've seen an openly transgender dancer just in the company in, in as a in a matter of fact way, not playing yeah, as themselves, yeah. Mother Ginger, not being Trocadero, not being the ugly, the ugly stepsisters and sleeping. The Beauty game kind of character characters yeah. to be ugly. Right. There's no, there's no like 
open level acceptance there. And I mean, Misty Copeland is the first uh, black principal dancer for ABT and it was 2018. And it's yeah. like, we're not nearly as progressive an industry or as open an industry as we like to say. And I think that goes right along with how much of our industry is didactic versus collaborative over at every level yeah. versus, yeah. I know, I know. And that's something I could do a really good, like quantitative version of this where like, I just make a really thorough survey and I just send it out to a bunch of different like <laughs> companies and things like that and see like how many are didactic versus the collaborative and, and the implications of that. And yeah, it's, there's some, there's such a long way to go. And yeah, we have, I could talk a lot about the gender stuff <laughs> because while ballet is notorious for it, it's also so big in the contemporary world, so big in the jazz world. You know, I don't, it's, it's again, it's another thing that we can't reform. We have to redo. Mm -hmm. We have to just fully redo it because not even just based on gender, but on like sexuality and all these things, like just yeah. the narratives we create we can't reform that crap it needs to just be redone like a trans person should just be able to be like even if they don't want to say that they're trans because that's like most some people don't like to be like I'm a trans man or I'm a trans woman like they're just like I am a man I am a woman and like and the way that dance deals with that I usually find in certain spaces is just so weird and like it, oh god so one uh, so I was in a very well-known dance studio here in the UK and I overheard some people who are very like high up within this dance studio talking about how frustrating and annoying it was to accommodate non-binary dancers. And as somebody who is a non-binary dancer, femme presenting, I still am okay with like being seen as a woman and things like that. I was again infuriated and wanted to say something but it is an unsafe environment for me to be able to say that both because of well just physically like I don't know what would have happened but also financial stability um things like if I cause a scene anywhere I'm on a visa not that I expected myself to like make a huge physical scene but if I was ever like get myself arrested I'd get deported like you know it's it's all sorts of different things and what they were saying they were like just so annoying like we have to change all the uniforms now and like all these things and I was just like it's so it's so wild to me that you're not recognizing the fact that you're literally just complaining about your loss of power like yeah. that's what it is you're yeah. literally just complaining about your loss of power because there is absolutely no inconvenience to you that you have to change the uniforms. There is no inconvenience to you that you can't call me miss or lady or like assume that I want to like do more hippie movement rather than like arm movement, whatever you categorize like for men and women. And it's literally just you complaining that about your loss of power publicly, which is super unprofessional. Like if you switch topics, you would never be like, oh my God, can you believe blah, 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 like talk to me like that in class today. That is, that's on the same scale. Like when you are talking about the fact that you're annoyed that you have to accommodate these non-binary dancers who I assume are dancers at this school and you're doing it publicly within the cafe space, that's automatically like 
fired for me. If I was like higher up person, I'd be like, that's, you're so stupid. That's so unprofessional. Like, I understand we all have frustrations and sometimes it's part of our process to like complain and then get feedback from people. But you do that in your office or you do that at home or you do that like somewhere where you're not in the space where you will directly cause harm because of your ranting or your, um, you know, your, your getting things off your chest. Mm. Um, and these are, this is a place that I, the, the dancers, I assume they're talking about in terms of like, they were very obviously in a program. These are young dancers, you know, that is so harmful. Um, well, that's where the, the programming comes from that has to be deep, like they, they're conditioned from a young age. And it's because we have to start and dance at such a young age because we're told our career is short lived. And I mean, from a physical standpoint, you know, there are physical limitations. It's very, very near impossible to do what we do at 80 years old now without mm-hmm. athletic dances, but it, it creates this real hard window where people are kind of indoctrinated into this lifestyle. And then we're almost coming in after the fact in order to try and end that. Yeah. And, that, and that's what's really difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things like as, as we've been talking, so something I've always said about, you know, the whole purpose of our show here is we want to kind of build the bridge between healthcare, dance, look at both sides, how they function independently, and then where there's ways to make those connections. And something I've always said, and, and it's interesting because it, it, my assumptions about dance research were, were kind of opposite of what your experience was, where a lot of healthcare providers are very not well educated, we'll say, on dance, biomechanics, injury, prevalence, how to interact with dancers. So a lot of times they get frustrated because they don't know what's going on. They're just like, well, just stop dancing, which is a terrible treatment method. Um, And when it comes to like educating them, the biggest claim is like, well, there's not a lot of research like to learn about how dance works, that quantitative uh, information. You were saying like in the research world, that's kind of what we're focusing on. And I think... The and thing that becomes like- so hard is that there's so many different styles, so many different techniques, and to try and build that research while also pushing this whole other world of research that is this qualitative thing and bringing it together. Like, I feel like one of the contributors to this gap that exists is that the conversation that's leading the charge in healthcare right now is really quali- qualitative data, quality, like data points. Like, how do we get things better? How do we prove that our treatments are working? Where in the dance world, the conversation that really needs to be happening is more qualitative. Like, how do we make yeah. interactions better? How do we hold people more accountable in this, you know, wild west of an industry that's kind of built up over the centuries and whatnot? And what are your thoughts on how we kind of like bring that together in some way at, from a research standpoint and like, a cultural because I think we're having I think one of the ways we can is through that quality because we're having a lot of these conversations in healthcare right now about how do we make our healthcare fields more diverse how do I create intake forms that aren't Mr. Mrs. like at our practice mm-hmm. we've now in, introduced different pronouns that people can choose and how do we have even simple things like uh, one of our owners used to specialize in what we were calling women's health and now she's like well I want it to be postpartum health because yeah. However you identify, however you present, it's it's postpartum yeah. health, not yeah. women's health or men's health or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. First, I mean, I think that's all great. That's the that's the right way um, to it, I believe. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, okay. So the original question is like, how do we bring those two things together in terms of the, the dance in healthcare? Is that what you're? Yeah. I mean, just like the level yeah. of understanding. So the, an immediate, uh, an immediate like fix or uh, thing is that, and it's not perfect again, is, you know, having more healthcare people be part of IADAMS, which is the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science. And there's a conference every year, I think every year. And, you know, it's tons of people from both, you know, just the healthcare side and then just the dance side. And then some of us who are dance science people in the middle. And it is a fantastic place to come together. Um, still very quantitative heavy because I think that's the way that dance science has put itself on the map was because the only way they could get physiotherapists and people and things like that, changing their minds about like dance and being not just being like, well, you gotta stop dancing was to show like, look at this rigorous quantitative like number research that we can do that gives physical results. And now we're seeing more and more qualitative to like get sprinkled in there. Um, but it's a, it's a process, but that's like one of the quick ways is find, and that's not the only conference. There's so many other like dance medicine um, organizations and conferences to go to and be part of. And again, it goes back to that intrinsic motivation. Like you have to ask people to find those kinds of things and not just be like dance and healthcare, just not a thing. Like if somebody is, is wanting to understand how they can better assist dancers, which I think is something that we all need to start asking and questioning, are you ready to take on people like dancers as well as, are you ready to take on someone who's trans? Are you ready to take on someone who's black and deal with any kind of social economical things that are going on? Like, and if you're not, then I highly suggest that you get ready and you're going to get ready by, we have this wonderful thing called Google, just Googling like, you know, something and vetting it because I assume that anyone within a research or scientific world understands how to vet you know, certain things and know what's a good, um, a good conference to go to or a good organization to get their knowledge from. Um, and that, that's really the way that I can see it happening other than just this individual, like, you know, we're, we're all talking now because we're passionate about it, but yeah. for people who are on the fence about something or who, who, are being questioned about not being able to deal with different types of patients. They need to go and like, we all need to and do this whole thing that we've kind of said over and over again is continuing education. Um, and uh, I know healthcare dependent on where you're from needs a lot of it. In my opinion, even here in the UK, like I, the, you know, a person who is trans isn't going to have a nice time in the healthcare system here. Right. Um, it's not perfect and it's not part of your training, your medical training yet, which is wild um, to me because it, if, if anything of like sexual organs and things like that is part of your, your training, then literally all you really need to know on top of it is like, 
is just refer and talk to the patient of how they, how they, who they are. And, you know, that would go for, for anything as well. It's this the same for, you know, the immortality rates for um, black mothers or black pregnant folk who, who die it's, or their mortality rate, you know, it's just, it, it's so apparent in the healthcare system here as much as it is in the U S and that is because, because of ignorance. And if you're, you need to know to look for these, these fillers, if you will, you need to first be able to look at where you come from, where your education was and be able to be aware of what is missing and you have to have that motivation and fill it. Um, Cause it, unless you have the means to start building your own system and stuff like that, there's never going to be a program that, that checks all these boxes that we need it to. Um, so that's how I see it bridging, honestly. And, and being, unafraid which is easier said than done based on different things to let someone know when they've caused harm Mm -hmm. I've had to do that within a doctor's office not for myself but for someone else about I had to get really angry and be like you have absolutely no training in trans health and I you know I refuse to speak to you anymore we need to see the principal doctor and you know we talked to the principal doctor about how or rather I did, because I was the one that could handle the horrendous situation, um, that it was just completely unacceptable. And, you know, if anything like that ever happens again, I will look into legal actions because it's just, it causes so much damage. Um, But because of the position I am in, though, I I can say things like that. I'm not afraid for my life. Um, I'm not, I am not in, in, enslaved to the healthcare situation because I don't need to change anything about my body or anything like that. Not to say that all trans people want to change things about their bodies, but it's just, it's, it's having, it's knowing where you have the privilege to say something and monitoring yourself to make sure that you always do. If you are safe and you have the ability to say something and challenge the problem when you see it, I would hope that you would do it because hopefully in a perfect world that those two doctors that I got extremely angry at will then go, Oh, wow. (laughs) Actually, I really do need to fix this. Um, even if, uh, even if they don't agree with it, which is disgusting, but even if they want to say that they can just say from like, you know, from a selfish point of view, they might be like, God, I never want somebody to come in here and say those things to me again. So I better at least get some knowledge. Um, I would hope in a perfect world that it would make them think, you know, twice about what they're doing. And like I said, I try to do that in the dance field. Again, in some ways in the dance field, I'm not as privileged again because of job stability, financial stability, my own gender expression. Sometimes actually I don't feel safe within those positions to let somebody like a choreographer know, or those people who are high up in the, um, at this dance studio, how I feel. And I really wish someone else had done it. Um, cause it's really disappointing when they don't. And, and, um, 
that's the only way I think things will change. And some of us don't get to talk in some situations and then some of us do. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like you're talking a lot about like allyship, but also about programming. Like how are we, because uh, if it depends on personal motivation, and as you said, right, it's disgusting if these doctors don't, you know, they just do it for selfish reasons. That's, that's part of it. But yeah. the other part is like when it, when it, uh, if it's built in, it's a kind of a must. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I look a lot at how we're trained as teachers or how we're trained as, um, as educators and as choreographers and things like that. And so some of the things I look a lot at are like partnering, right? Like who are yeah. we partnering with? Who do we, who do we support? What organizations do we support and why? And yeah. what, you know, what are they doing to better further the field? Um, whether yeah. that's in health, like it's specifically right now we're talking about healthcare, but it could be with anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think that those are, those are, those, um, uh, um, well, first of all, the resources that you're going to gather. And again, I'm speaking from an academics perspective, but you know, if we want students to be reading these certain articles, we have to be in particular, you know, relationships with certain organizations. Right. Yeah. Um, cause as we talked about, right. Very Eurocentric research otherwise. Um, but then also how are we, um, like who are we bringing in and, and are these conversations happening in the spaces? And, yeah. and, and why they need to be. So not just like, oh, we're, you know, check the box. We did this like visibility check. Yay, we're good. But looking at our programs and what are we, yeah. you know, one of the things that we did when we, we started partnering with a chiropractor um, here in lo- locally, um, you know, he's like, yeah, absolutely. All you have to do is put my name in the program. That's all. That's really all I care about. And we were like, whoa, mm-hmm. okay. Um, and he was like, and you know what? Uh, the dancers here are, are really, you know, there's, there's uh, not just dancers, a lot of our students in general, uh, healthcare is a, an issue. There's not, there's not a lot of funding available. We're in a rural area. And so he was like, you know what, I'm going to make it really cheap for them to come to, you know? So it's yeah. like having those conversations of like, it's not just about the thing. It's about what does the thing become and what can it become and how can we like build those bridges to help, um, yeah better instead of just like oh I'm gonna pat myself on the back because I did this thing you know yeah and it's also about it's also about (laughs) this gets really intense but it's also about letting go of your ego and actually stepping aside when knowing when you're actually not right for something because of whatever stepping aside and passing that on to somebody (laughs) who is qualified um and uh, you know underrepresented or something like that if if that's um some of the things that is you're dealing with it's just like and that's hard that's really hard whether you're in dance performance or dance academia because we've all been programmed that you know if you're not it or if you can't do it someone else can so we've been we've been programmed to operate on scarcity oh yeah and and it's, it's not and it's just not it's not the way and it's another new deprogramming thing to say. It's like, it's just, it's not a new thing, but in this conversation, it's another deprogramming is like, you got to take a really hard look at yourself yeah, and be like, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not the person for this. It's, and, and, and I don't need to feel like I absolutely have to have this because otherwise my whole life is going to crumble and I'm not going to be able to do this thing or whatever. Cause that's what scarcity does to us. It causes this like anxiety and things like that. And, and 
That's a hard one, but I think it's it's one of the most important <laughs> mm-hmm. for sure. Well, I think similar to the comment you had about like the when not having a contract, when you're telling someone they're just the number, then you're saying that yeah, there <laughs> some total existence doesn't really hold inherent value. Exactly. And I mean, you can't talk about that didactic versus uh, collaborative effort. You can't claim collaboration with anything if you can't acknowledge like the value an individual brings. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm like that yeah it becomes that machine situation and i think if, to go like even generally broader i think especially in the us right now with how it, how things post pandemic is related to like labor force like we're seeing like workers all over the place just up and leaving jobs at record rates because they're just not happy and they're not going to take it anymore which is and so I think good that's something that really <laughs> <used to> <laughs> yeah yeah and Oh God, I I try, I try to 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 be part of that movement because it's needed here too. I mean, it's so much worse in the U.S. in my experience, but it's still needed here, and especially in dance. Like anytime I talk to people about the fact that like I haven't made a work that I wanted to make because I don't want to bring in dancers unless I can pay them, they've been like what are you doing? Like, just, you know, get some friends together. It's fine. And I'm like, no, see, I need y'all to join me because otherwise like it's, we need all the workers walking out. Like otherwise it's never, no one's ever going to do, no one's ever going to change it. And we've been told we should do it for the passion of it because we want to see, and that's why we deal with so much of the abuse in the field because we love the final product is so much. And we want to see it realized that or every little thing that we give up, it's like, oh, I don't need health insurance. I don't need mental health. I don't need time off. I don't need someone who knows how to treat me or a healthcare provider to actually be educated on dance. Mm-hmm. And it's all these yeah. micro concessions that become this whole like, oh, we have zero authority, autonomy, or like consideration in the uh, conversation anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we gotta, we gotta make people let us in to teach those things. Cause yeah, the people that aren't, like I said before, there's some, the problem with getting this education out there, even within some of the higher education things, is the fact that there is so much corruption already there. And of course, they don't want you to come in and, and talk about all these things because it would mean that they're irrelevant and that somebody else should be in their position. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, and in speaking about that, like, so we talked a little bit, I, I mentioned like, who are we partnering with and what are, what resources are we having our students read? But can you talk a little bit about publishing and like where, like finding, you know, cause I, I know, again, we're going to get into this very similar conversation around, you know, Eurocentric um, publishing uh, requirements and things like that. But, and, and also like, I do still believe that there is still a, a, a hierarchical structure around like quantitative research over qualitative research. I definitely see that as well. Um, but, you know, how do we get our students to understand that um, there, there are research, there is research out there and um, to know where to look for it? Oh, man. Sorry, <laughs> I dropped a bomb. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's a good one, but it's just... So I'll, I'll preface by saying I have never published anything in a research journal. Okay. Um, because of so many obstacles, mostly the financial one. I don't have two grand to to put to publish something, which is what I see a lot here in the UK. Um, and also there's the fact that 
And I, I it, it would be that much to make it open access. That's what right. I mean. Yeah. So that's the thing. And that's, I wouldn't want to publish anything unless it was open access. <laughs> because my, if you had to pay to read my work, then it doesn't go with my my values <laughs> I see and I love like that was going to be my next question about open access so I love that yeah it. so yeah. It, it's it's publishing and then and there's so many and it's how we value or what we say is published because I'm published in my opinion I I wrote a blog post on the dance psychologist's um website page when at the time it came out it apparently gave her website the largest boost and the most views that any like post uh, blog, like external blogger post ever had. So like, I obviously know that it was very valuable to the people who interact with her and her page and her work. And I got messages about it and felt very successful with that. And it, it was about how, um, uh, basically how I wanted like dancers to take care of themselves in terms of the pandemic and learning that even though there were all these online classes, they don't have to do them. Basically, it was just looking at the psychology of that kind of stuff. Um, I can't even remember exactly what I talked about, but I know I was proud of it and I would, I would have people read it for years to come. And I put research into that. I did lots of reading and things like that. It's on a blog. It's on a well-viewed blog. That's, mm -hmm. I, it's frustrating to me that I know I wouldn't be able to go to a university and show that as published work because it's a great article and it's a really rigorous article <laughs> actually. But um, yeah, so in terms of the valued publications, I'm not published because I want it to be open access. I think it's absurd because that totally goes against all the things we said about dissemination. Like the only way you're gonna access an article is, is if you're in higher education and you've got a university login. And actually I can't tell you how many things that I actually wanted to read and it didn't matter that I was in uni, I still was going to have to pay for it. And I said, no. And that means that my research might've suffered because I didn't buy a bunch of like 50 pound transcripts and like things like that, because that's not, again, that would have been financial instability on my part and taking advantage of almost my labor time and all these things, because that's not built into my student contract if you want to talk about contracts like I'm already paying you know I knew when I signed up I'm paying my school fees I'm paying my loans I'm paying like that kind of stuff getting articles is supposed to be in my 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 right because I'm going to higher ed and I want to I should be able to use my higher education login yeah. so there's that and so yeah and I and it's very Eurocentric because there is absolutely nothing different that I would have done to publish my work in a journal than what I did on the blog post. Sure. It's just about us being ex exclusive. It really is. And I know people will, will moan and be like, well, no, it's, it's because like, you know, you did a lot of work, so we want you to get paid. Academics don't get paid for reads and things like that of their stuff. Yep. Like, and if you do, it's such a small amount. It's like people being like, oh yeah, music artists, put your music on, on Spotify because you'll, you'll get paid per stream. It's nothing. It's, it is a, it is, <laughs> it is a very empty argument, <laughs> like, um, you know, and so that's my whole thing on publishing. And I just really wish that 
you know, I, I, I've tried to change some things and I will keep trying to change some things in academia, but the way that I deal with it is writing blog posts and by doing my practical dissemination in my workshops and in my class. And I know that that aligns with my values and, and, and it even still aligns with my values of actually getting paid for my labor. Cause if I'm doing a workshop that people are coming to, then like, you know, I'm a firm believer in this, like we're translating all this knowledge and stuff through movement and through words. And it doesn't have to be through paper and maybe you'll make notes or whatever, but like, it's still just as powerful, if not more powerful sometimes. Um, and yeah, I know academia and things like healthcare situations and stuff like that might be like, yeah, that's great, but we can't do anything with it. And I can, I can recognize, okay, yeah, you can't do anything with it. So that means I'm not right for you and you're not right for me. Um, and I'm talking, sorry, I was just saying, and I'm talking about this so nonchalantly, but actually this was what my anxiety was at my end of my school year was this like ripping apart the idea of realizing that this thing that I thought I was always going to do, which was going to be a higher education lecture. And then I was like coming to terms with that and like validating myself that my way of doing things is actually really important. Mm -hmm. That was so hard and it's not, I'm not done yet on that journey. There's still so many times where like, even just getting ready for this podcast, I was talking to my partner. I was like, oh my God, they're going to be like, oh my God, what are we doing? She's not actually a dance scientist anymore. Like all these things. No way, no way. Totally like a fraud. (laughs) Not, no. And that, I think that's the point because as we have these conversations with our students, like I'm very lucky that I am the jazz and tap person, but I also teach dance history because that is not often relegated to the person who teaches those forms. Yeah. Um, And so those conversations of having like, who is historically left out? Who, who has been? And so this is the structure upon which we stand right? Why are you reading reviews from, you know, Ailey's Revelations or, um, I don't know, Pearl Primus's Strange Fruit, and you're reading them from the white perspective. Like what, like, what does that say about dance research? So I think in having those conversations in our critical theory courses, where look, let's look at the foundation of dance research. And let's look about, you know, when the first dance program in the United States was was made, and it was majoring segregation and, you know, and having those dialogues about, so how do we change the system? Like I allow my students, if it's from a first person voice, and they're looking at a choreographer, you can use that choreographer's Instagram. I'm not going to pretend like him speaking or her speaking, or they speaking about their work is not not appropriate because it's on their Instagram page. That's yeah. outrageous. That's outrageous to me. And I allow them. And I do tell them like, look, if you ever want to go into a publishing body, someone's not going to agree with me. And yeah. I'm perfectly aware of that. And I recognize that. And I understand that. And so we, we, we do, we have these conversations around what, what all of this means, but, you know, especially when the pandemic hit and I know like Camille Brown did one. Um, I know not one, she's done several. Um, there was the black dance stories. There was, um, like so many people just came out and were like, let's just go, let's just do it. And I'm not going to pretend that those lectures aren't any less or more valuable than those that are sitting in JSTOR right now. I just, I, I don't, you know what I mean? So, and that's not a knock at one or the other, but it really is to try and understand that I can't teach the lesson that dance is built on a rocky foundation and not actually give them an example, right? So, 
yeah go ahead i mean it's being sincere about where like what the goal is again because if we're if we're trying to get the information out and we have a first person source but it's not like this quote unquote research you know mla form primary like, like secondary <laughs> Right. And we're already talking about barriers to getting the information out to make it meaningful. If the point of research is to better something, whether it's bettering how we care for patients as healthcare or better in industry and how we function, interact with our dancers as choreographers, if that's the goal and the barrier is already getting people to actively need to want to do it. And then we throw up a bunch of fiscal barriers, especially in the arts where we're one of the most underfunded things out there. <laughs> I mean, there's, you, you can't claim then the same way that a collaborator who's just like dictating movement can't claim to be a collab, you can't claim that that's the goal anymore. Yeah. Like it has to be congruent or else we have to find other ways around it. And like, yeah, again, if the choreographer is saying something, but it's not like in a formal thing of writing and it's in some like TikTok, so it's still someone saying the thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> Well, I think too, like researching who the person is saying the thing too, you know, mm -hmm. like I, it's, it's also about maybe, and that I, I have found that that process actually allows the dancers to like really go in deeper mm -hmm. because it's not just like, oh, I found this thing. And I'm like, okay, talk to me about that. Who is that person? What do you guys, like, where are you, where are you um, exercising that right to use that statement? And I think that that's the point is like, as because if we are talking about, excuse me, like training, uh, changing a system and, and um, finding value in, in things that perhaps didn't have any value or were, you know, tragically misinformed, um, I'll say that. And that's like the only nicest way possible. I know how to say that, um, you know, like, what are we doing? What, how are we having students see themselves in the research? I think mm -hmm. that's the other part of that big component of it. I had a student do a piece um, in, uh, they did a research um, presentation in ballet and it was the first time that she saw herself represented in ballet. And she was just like, I had no, I just thought that this was like outside of my purview. It was never something that I could be ever have access to. I didn't start till I was 18, you know, yeah. and just like to see that process of her being frustrated with the, the, the project to begin with, but then allowing herself to like read it and be like, wait, I'm allowed to pick whoever I, oh, you know, and then when yeah. she did the project, just to see the difference of the ways in which it, it benefited. Right. I think it's great. And it's exactly what we all said about like, that is, that's how we're going to that's how we're going to do it, honestly, because it's if we want to align ourselves with the values and what we believe, then we've got to we have to allow it. And then exactly as you said, give full, you know, knowledge of the fact that this isn't going to be how everyone else works. And if you do want to publish your work later on, we're going to have to work together to get your writing um, to that standard. And that's going to be a choice that you make at that point in time. Um, yeah. Well, and the other thing I just, it just kind of struck me, but the other thing that was really interesting to work with some of the students this year was they had to justify the use of that source, which I think mm -hmm. is almost even more like valuable to them. Like, yeah. so this is why it's important because then they could really, um, I don't know, there was some foundation upon which they were standing on that, quite frankly, sometimes some of the foundation standing on is pretty rocky and that stuff's published, right? So yeah. I think it's, it was really informative to my teaching process too, to be like, fine, talk to me. Tell yeah. me why you want to use that one. You know what I mean? Let's, let's have a conversation about it. And sometimes for sure, it was like, you know, 
Joe Schmo dot da 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 da. I was like, no, that's yeah. I don't know. There's no data. Yeah. It doesn't even have a title of a person. You yeah. know, we have, we, but we have negotiations in class. But I do. I think it, it really made them like. I don't know. I call it like a treasure hunt. Their their paper yeah. is like a treasure hunt. Um, and not that they want to prove this thing, but that they want to like, this is my, these are my thoughts around dance. Okay. Let's have conversations about who brings in that and why. Right. I think that's a fantastic tool for getting to what the essence of what a lit review or a research paper is actually supposed to be about. Cause when you do it the other way around and you're so focused on the getting reliable sources or the primary primary source and stuff like that. How many times, and I'll, I'll say I do, I've done this, done it many times. Do you just want to say something? And so you just go looking for a piece of research or quote that literally just supports what you want to say. Cause you're like, I can't say it unless it's backed up. And so that's just like the complete opposite of what we want, but we all do it because there's so much value put onto the fact that like you need everything you say has to be like backed up. And so you're not even actually engaging with somebody's research or whatever. You're just wanting them to like agree with a thought that you've already had, which means that you're not actually dissecting and analyzing the thought you had anyways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it, I think that's a fantastic way of kind of bringing the onus back onto the point of sources is like, why did you pick that? Why was it so interesting and rich to you? And like, how did it change your view? Or then if it did just uphold your view, like, why does it do that? Because like, what is your view? And mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, and I think too, to go back to um, James, you had said this earlier, but you said, what was it? Biopsychosocial, right? Yeah, um, that model. So, you know, I want to, um, well, talk about, you know, um, <laughs> continuing education, but I went, I, I use the um, cycle of socialization, right? At the very beginning of class. And I'm like, you're going to read some stuff in this class that you are not going to agree with wholeheartedly at all so let's talk about this cycle of socialization and they put their numbers next to the things that they think about often they think about least they think about you know depending on situational and I tell them all the time I'm like so in and then take yourself out of this very familiar situation so some of you are from rural Utah so you're very familiar with this place now Mm -hmm. take yourself into someone you've never been to New York so now you're in like downtown New York you're you know like will your will your social model change and they were like, oh my gosh, yeah, I would not, like, these are not things that would serve me in that instance, right? Mm-hmm. And I think starting the class from that place, while it's not, it, it feels like more personal research, right? So mm-hmm. that I can get them to perhaps not argue when they read something that they don't. And I, I actually welcome arguing. I don't want them to agree with me all the time. But yeah. if there, you know, there is often, especially where we, we are, that, that argument, they're like, well, I don't, I just, this is not true. You know, and it's like, okay, well, here's three more articles or four more articles mm-hmm. or where, where are we having this conversation? But that they can always go back to their social identity wheel and be like, oh, that's yeah. why I'm thinking that. Like I had them watch The Divine Horseman and I had a student just be like, I was uncomfortable when I first started watching it. And then I had to check myself and be like, I'm uncomfortable because I've never seen this before, not because mm-hmm. I don't like it. And so yeah. now I have to like sit back and actually watch it. And you might still not like it. You might still not like it okay, that's okay. But what is the, what's the system at play when you first start watching and you're uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. And that goes back what you just like said, it goes back to the way this podcast started and maybe it answers even more the kind of how are we going to implement dance education, healthcare and all this stuff. It's good planning. 
there it's good planning you chose and you had a reason to ch- why you chose to start the class that way mm-hmm. and not and then and it's what I found with like the choreographer like you have to have a good plan for yeah. the things of the time periods of what you want to achieve whether you're in dance whether you're in healthcare whether you're in higher education whether you're you know in a rec center whether you're just in a rehearsal center, anything mm-hmm. if there isn't a good plan with reasoning and I think that is the thing that we mess up so much in our artistic practices is what I know I messed up so much in my artistic practices it wasn't until that I did my master's degree in that that project that I did that I then started looking at the fact that like ooh, actually just looking at my rehearsal process or something like that even again not from an emotional standpoint or a collaborative standpoint it was just ineffective because I didn't plan anything (laughs) you know I might have made up movement or whatever but my like plan between you know point a to point b like what I want people to experience during this rehearsal time frame and like this project time frame it wasn't a I had never thought about it so rigorously. And that goes again, back to the way we're taught to choreograph or taught to be artists. It's like, oh, if you're an artist, you get to be so like mad and like the process gets to be so like flippant and like emergent. And in some ways that is true, but uh, I just see time and time again, it's these good plans that make the biggest like, changes and and the most moving pieces of art to me you know and and the reason why maybe for some of us some of our like favorite pieces of dance work you know you look at it and you're like oh but you know they got this amount of years to do it and it's like well maybe if they had I don't know it's like they got a lot of time to be kind of faffing around potentially whereas maybe if you have like a truncated amount of time but you then have a good plan. Maybe you could have made the same thing. I don't know. I don't know, but I do know that especially within education and healthcare, like, and everything that a lot of things could be, could be, you know, avoided with a good plan with somebody who knows how to, how to make it. Um, Yeah. I, I mean, that, I, I think that's a wonderful way to end unless there's any, James, you have any, I mean, seriously, I think that's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, normally our, our final question is like, what, what is the way, what is a, a, a topic we can, a form of implementation to actually accomplish it? I think you hit the nail on the head. If you don't know where you're going, you can't figure out how to get there and you need a plan along the way in order to do it. And it, it sounds so simple, but we forget it all the time when we're in an artistic realm. Yeah. We really do like it because it's again, it's just what we've been fed and you're like, it's process and all this stuff. But like, I don't know, um, Rita, like the Twilight Tharp has a good book on like creativity and I have a lot of problems with it, actually. Like there's a lot of stuff in that book that I have a problem with. But if you do look at creative psychology and things like that, you are more creative when there's a little bit of structure. Like it, it, there has to be some structure. Um yeah. Funny too. Like just like motivated by like by the end of this two hour, three hour rehearsal, what would you like to have done? Like just yeah. like one goal. It doesn't even have you know what I mean? Because I think sometimes yeah. when we say structure, um, it goes like that. It's like, okay, here's my like chart and here's all the things yeah. like 302. I'm gonna do this yeah. is <laughs> like and that that's the uh, that's counterintuitive, right? So it's yeah. like that 
that creative process within, like James said, right? You have to know, you have to have some idea, some plan, and let's go forth with that. And then, yeah. you know, the the agency to abandon the plan if need be, right? Yes. Right. Uh, well, in healthcare and choreography, like having the idea of, you know, I, I know how many directors will choreograph a scene. I'm like, so what's the goal? What are we accomplishing in the scene? Like, what do we want to do? And it's like, well, I want to do this kind of lift and that. And I'm like, no, 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 but what's happening? Like, what are we accomplishing yeah. with this? <laughs> with healthcare when people are like you know I, I'm critical of docs who like to call themselves sports docs because the insinuation is you know literally every sport on the planet to an expert level extent biomechanically yeah. kinematically and it's like so okay if you're gonna make that claim or if you're gonna say I want to treat this population what's your plan of going out and doing it like I don't just want to treat dancers that come into the practice I want to help do something to help better the overall health there so as it relates to research, yeah, I think both sides, the best thing we can do moving forward is how do we plan as doctors who claim that we are taking into account the biocycle social model and who take an oath to do no harm and help our patients, what is our plan for interacting with this very unique population that doesn't function biomechanically like anything we learned in school? And then yeah. for dance, I, how do we plan to implement those qualitative changes? Yeah, and then what is our what is our tool for self-monitoring along the way? Am I aligning with my plan? Does my plan need to change? It's really just about a good plan and interacting with it. Right. <laughs> it sounds so simple, but it's not. It takes a lot. <laughs> yeah. I think this has been an awesome conversation, Kayla. I want to thank yeah, you it's been great. for coming on and being with us. Thank you, Kayla, for um, just sharing your insights with us. We're, we're so appreciative. And just on a personal note, it's just really great to see your face. Um, thank you so much. Uh, and again, like if you enjoyed these conversations, uh, you can follow us on Instagram. And of course, we have to thank um, and everyone for tuning in. Um, and if you're interested, of course, more critical conversations will be on the way. And we also have to thank our collaborators as, you know, as we're mentioning collaboration, right? Um, so we have a big thank you to our music com com composer, Alexandra Osman, um, and of course, graphic design by Dr. Kelsey Elliott. So thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we appreciate it. Thanks, Kayla. Thank you, Will.